You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I dream the dream of days to come Where sponsorship is high and money is forthcoming That's beautiful, Kevin. I really added a voice onto that one, too. (laughs) I really was trying to go for something there. Listeners, we love creating this podcast, but it does cost money. Please don't make me sell my Angel record. Oh my gosh, the original cast recording of Angel. That, like, nobody has. Nobody has it. If you like what we are doing and want us to keep doing more of it, please... Head over to Patreon.com. What? That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Pat Rion. I feel like Pat Rion. <laughs> oh, yeah, Pat Rion. Rion. Pat Rion. Yeah, and once you're there, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends. And of course, we don't expect you to give without receiving some great rewards. Such rewards include behind-the-scenes videos, shout-outs on future episodes, mm. or episodes, depending on what part of the country you're from, because <laughs> I said episodes, and early access to some of our podcasts. Hell, for the right price, Kevin and I will come to your apartment and act out all of Agnes of God. <laughs> yeah. So head over, friends, to P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com to help us out. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legend. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast Plus. You can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. If it wasn't for a train ride from New York City to Washington, D.C. with Donny Osmond, <laughs> then our guest might not be sitting here today. Believe it or not, that train ride led her from being an assistant company manager to being an associate producer to being a producer to being a Tony Award winning producer. Nice. She is one of the very few producers who is committed to bringing new voices and new works to the American musical theater. Huzzah! Huzzah, To quote you, sorry. Huzzah. No, I love it. No revivals, no rehashes, just new stories for new generations. In this capacity, she has produced this season's Come From Away, Tony Award winning Memphis, First Date, Dr. Shivago, Vanities, Make Me a Song, and that doesn't even include the over 50 musicals she's produced at Goodspeed Opera House. Oh my gosh, to tell us what it was like to work with such legends as William Finn, Donny Osmond, Arthur Lawrence, and Cheetah Rivera, here is the artist who wears many, 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 many hats, Tony Award winning producer, Sue Frost. Hi, Sue. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Oh my God. Thanks so for excited. being here, Sue. <laughs> my pleasure. I have to say also, on a personal note, Sue is the best travel companion that anybody could ever wish for. Oh, did you travel together? Sue and I did a road trip together uh, to Isn't Penn State University a while back, and it was really, really lovely. She's the best travel companion, so Aww. I did do a long road I trip. I tried to behave. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Take Sue it's with hard you. With this guy. <laughs> so, now, Sue, where were you born? 
I was born in Wakefield, Rhode Island. Wakefield, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And what did your folks do? My dad, when I was born, when I was little, my dad was a pipe fitter at uh, Electric Boat in Mm -hmm. Groton, Connecticut, and my mom was a housewife. And my dad subsequently became a plumbing and heating salesman for Sears Roebuck, and my mom became a telephone operator. A telephone operator. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! Back when they were telephone operators, <laughs> you know, you'd call information and you'd get a person, yeah. and you'd ask for a phone number, and they would give it to you. That was my mom. Right. Oh my yeah. gosh, that's amazing. Younger generation scratching their heads, saying, scratching what are you their heads, scratching their heads. Talk to somebody, yeah, like a stranger. Yeah. At what age did you discover the arts? What age did you? Discover when I was a kid, uh, actually, I think my first exposure was I was a Girl Scout, mm. and we were doing a play called The Punctuation Proclamation, Ooh. and I got the part <laughs> of the king because I was the only person who could learn the lines. <laughs> and uh, and the people were applauding me and laughing at me, and I thought, well, this is fun. Right? I, would ke- I will keep doing this. I will keep doing this. The, the title of that, what was that? The P- Punctuation P- Proclamation. The Punctuation Proclamation. Mm-hmm. And you played the pivotal role of? Uh, the king. Yeah. The king. And, yeah. and the king just decreed I don't remember a thing about be. it. How old were you? I don't know, eight? Oh, maybe? my yeah, no, gosh. I was young. I was, I was li- literally like in Girl Scouts, and it was a skit. <laughs> and I thought, that was fun. And yeah. then I started to gravitate toward theater in middle school. I guess we in, at, back then, mm-hmm. back in the old days, yeah. since I am letting you all know how old I am, that was called junior high. Yes. And uh, junior high, I did a little bit of acting in whatever there was. And uh, and then high school, I was one of those drama nerds. Oh, yeah. yeah. And You're uh, a good company. changed my life. Made well, it possible to get through high school. Did you have a really good drama teacher? Or I had a great drama teacher. Really I, had a, I had a great drama teacher, a mentor, uh, who um, really supported all of us. She was yeah. really terrific. And that was also back in the day when every school had a theater program and a mm. drama teacher. And yeah. I was also, you know, in the choir. And so I did a lot of, uh, yeah. I liked performing. I enjoyed it. What roles did you play in high school? Anyone that stand no. out to you? Okay, there's two: the widow Corny and Oliver. Oh, oh big! Oh, big! That was big. Yeah. And then uh, the other one was, um, oh Lord, what was his name? The mother in uh, Bye Bye Birdie, the one who stuck her head in the oven. Mrs. Peterson. Mrs. Yes. Peterson. Yes, I was a character actress oh, even then. They even- <laughs> But that's the fun stuff. Yeah. Let me, so let me ask you, a lot of young actresses don't like being labeled character actresses mm-hmm. in high school. Did that mm-hmm. bother you? It didn't bother me at all because I got those parts and it was really fun. Yeah. Where it became problematic was when I got out of college and I realized that I'd still been doing character work in mm. college because you could get those roles then. It was going to be another 20 to 30 years before I got an actual job. Right. So the uh, the career of, uh, of an actress seemed very um, remote to me once I got to New York. Interesting. Now, where did you go to college? I went to Smith College. And you studied theater specifically? Theater. I had a, 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 I get a, what do they call it, a concentration in acting. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, were your parents supportive? Of Very. The- Oh, really? Very, very they nice. totally didn't get it. They still don't get it. Yeah. Uh, I'm my, my dad is gone, but my mom still has a... Uh, trying to figure out what producing is versus <laughs> directing and all of that, but that's okay. That's, really, <laughs> that's okay. That's There's no yeah. reason why she should. It's pretty complex. <laughs> it is pretty complex. Yeah. yeah. Uh, why did you choose Smith College? That was a fluke again. Um, I was not on a track to go away to college. I was just going to go to the University of Rhode Island, which mm. is what everybody else did. And um, Oh, really? Well, that you know, like when the- you're you're a kid in... in, right. in uh, uh, a working class kid in Rhode Island, you don't think to reach for the stars like that. Sure. Um, I had a cousin who had ended up, he ended up going um, to Amherst, which if you know that part of the world, there's Smith, there's Amherst, there's Mount Holyoke, there's UMass uh-huh. and uh-huh. Um, Hampshire College.
college. It's like a whole uh, group of colleges in Western uh, Massachusetts. And he said, if you like theater, you should just come take a look at Smith because they just built a new theater department, new building. It was beautiful. Wow. And so I went there and I was like, wow, yeah. I didn't know anything like this existed. So I kind of threw my hat in the ring and lo and behold, I got accepted. And I went. It was a it was a life changing choice. It yeah. was a life changing yeah. choice. I believe. You know, you ask oh, yourself yeah. that question: When in your life do you make decisions that actually put you on a different path? That yeah. was the first one. Yeah. Knowing what you know now, what do you wish you could tell your younger self who was in college at that time? Take oh. this class. Don't do this. Oh, do I wish. That. You know, Smith was a liberal arts school, mm. and it, basically the way it broke down is you just had to take half your classes outside of your major. Mm. Um, so I wish I had taken a few more practical classes. Not that there were that many at Smith, yeah. but I could have taken them at UMass. Mm. I could have gone elsewhere. Oh. I was so focused on theater, on the drama department, on that. I just never, I never left campus. Mm. I just, I just did one show after another. When I didn't get cast, I'd stage manage. You know, I was oh, just, wow. it was what I lived for. That's what I lived for. And I didn't think beyond that. Most of my career was shaped by summer jobs. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's so fascinating. When you yeah. were in college, what was your favorite role that you played? Um, I was the lead in And Miss Reardon Drinks a Little. <gasps> that was really a fun role. Oh, that was a really fun that's role. That's incredible. Yeah. That's yeah. really incredible. Yeah. I was like eating raw hamburger on stage. It was, it was oh, amazing. Yeah, it was that's, great. That's a play that sort of has disappeared, it has hasn't disappeared, it? But it was a really fun play. Who did it? Was it Estelle Parsons? Oh, Who did it originally? It was somebody oh, like that. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't remember. Oh, oh, you never, oh no, really? I'm oh. ignorant here. I, I'm... Oh, we'll act Wait. it out for you. Yeah, well, well, I'll do a scene later. It's really very intense. Very, I'll get the very raw intense. Yeah. Get, get to the raw hamburger and we'll, we'll, we'll remount it. Um, were you taking trips to New York at all? Do you remember the first show you saw um, in New York? You know, first? that's a funny question. I, I can't tell you exactly. I'm not one of those people who can say, hey, then this was mm. the moment. But, sure. you know, we went to New York with my church group when mm -hmm. I was in high school, and I was fascinated by that. I also grew up at a time when, um, and now again, I, my brain is so... Uh, tired right now. What was the program that sent all those, every high school in Rhode Island to Trinity Rep? What was that program called? That I don't oh, know. Oh, all right. I, I need to remember the name of that, but every high school kid in Rhode Island went to Trinity Rep to okay. see theater, and it was a, a fantastic experience. What a and great program. We also, because of our uh, the dedication of our drama teacher, and she was determined to get us to as many things as possible, we'd come to New York. We also went to the Stratford Festival oh in Stratford, goodness. Connecticut. Oh, my God. Connecticut, yeah, yeah. Stratford, Connecticut. Back when it was oh, when it was doing that, that when it was doing when they were doing Shakespeare. So yeah. I got to see a lot of theater, which normally I wouldn't have. My parents wouldn't have done it. You know, right. that's not what they grew up with. So I learned I learned to love uh, theater when I was in high school to really get out and see. Yeah. That. What kind of music were you listening to growing up? Was it specifically cast recordings, or were you all over no. the map? No, I, yeah. you know it's so funny that I now spend my entire life with musical theater. I was not a musical theater <laughs> nerd. I was a theater nerd. Oh, I was an I was a drama nerd. I see. And what happened was um, when I when I went out to the Goodspeed to start work um, in my twenties, I, I I developed a huge appreciation for musical theater. But it's not, I I listened to I listened to like popular music. Yeah. I listened to whatever kids yeah. listen to. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting that yeah. your whole life is yeah. is musicals. Who who was your favorite playwright? You mean now or when I was a kid? I was going to say in high or, school, but maybe it hasn't changed. I don't know. Oh, boy. I don't, I, I don't have favorites. 
I'm, I lean toward more traditional, yeah. you know, plays. I like plays that have a, a context and a beginning and a middle and the end. Um, I'm, I'm fairly traditional that way. Um, let's come back to that. Let me think about Great. that. Great. Yeah. We'll come back to that. Yeah. So now you leave college, you graduate. Mm-hmm. Mom and dad are totally fine with the fact that you're going to try to make a career as an actress, right? Not, not. Well, I'm moving to New York and I think I'm going to be an actress. You think you're going to yeah. be an actress. <laughs> but I had a job. Um, when I was in college, I spent two summers at the Berkshire Theater Festival. Oh. And I, I, I was not, I couldn't afford to do acting internships. I had to go somewhere where I was going to be paid. Sure. Um, so I got a job the first summer at the Berkshire Theater Festival, and I was the assistant box office treasurer. Okay? okay. And then the box office treasurer never showed up, so I <coughs> learned how to be the box office treasurer. And then, and then I was, I and then the company <laughs> manager needed help, so I became the assistant company manager. So I was like, it was one of those yeah. things, and that's what I tell young people all the time. I tell them, now you get out there, you get anything, just put your best self into it, totally. and don't ever say no, and try everything. And that's what happened to me. And I had my second season there was produced by Fritz Holton Barry Brown. Mm. And uh, and uh, Charlie Willard was the company manager, and I'm, I'm naming names that maybe nobody really recollects anymore, but these guys were fantastic. They had produced some wonderful uh, musicals in New York, and Charlie had company managed a ton of stuff, and mm. I literally just did whatever needed doing. And when I was getting ready to graduate, Charlie was really helpful. He was a great mentor to me, and uh, he got me... Um, a job with a general manager, um, a guy named Leonard Mulhern, and Leonard did plays. He did a lot of uh, one-on plays with uh, uh, Elliot Martin, was the producer, and uh, so I was in an office where we were doing a Touch of the Poet with Jason Robards, mm. and you know, oh, really, wow. and so, and that was my job, job while I was theoretically, you know pursuing a role as a a career as an actress. But after two years of never actually earning a dime as a performer and working pretty steadily as a manager, I decided that maybe I should kind of like reevaluate my priorities. Oh, yeah. And I liked what I was doing. You did? Yeah, Yeah, I did. Sounds like you were very inspired by the people you were working with. Yeah, and it was, was, you know, to be a kid in New York and have opportunities to work with people like that, I mean, that was like extraordinary. Were you auditioning for straight theater as well as musical theater? Pretty much. I didn't have much musical theater training. I mean, I liked, I sang. Thing, but right. I didn't have any training. And it was not, musical theater was not big at Smith, trust me. Okay. I mean, Kathleen Marshall came out of Smith. Uh, she was 10 years after me, and I think there was maybe a little bit more of that there. But <laughs> right. the, the faculty, the, the drive there was not musical not theater musical. at yeah. all. I mean, gotcha. I was pathetic. Did you have yeah. a standard monologue that you would dust out for the old auditions? Oh, golly. You know, We're not I, I, make you this, do it. No. no. You know, I'm, you're just bringing back some really bad memories. So can we be. <laughs> <laughs> I have a recollection of. <laughs> Of an audition for a summer stock theater where I had to sing Adelaide's Lament. Oh, yeah. And I truly had a bad cold. Oh. <laughs> so it method. Was, and it, was, it was so method. And let me tell you, it was at a hotel out by LaGuardia Airport. What? No. There was nothing like exciting or normal about this. It was, it was weird and creepy and I felt sick and I did the worst audition ever oh, and I got in the car. I had borrowed a friend's car to drive there from Smith and I oh got in the car and I was driving back thinking, this, 
this is never going to work. This is just never going to work. And then when I got to New York, I had several other similar horrible yeah. experiences. Yeah, that'll do it. You know, and when you walk out of an audition and you're standing on the sidewalk going, I really think I'm going to be sick. It's like, you know, maybe you should rethink what, right. you, what yeah. you're doing with your career. So let's let's talk about company management for sure. a little bit because sure. it's something that um, maybe our listeners aren't that aware of. So what does a company manager do? Company management now is a little bit different than it was when I was younger um, because everything is so much more complex in terms of right. ticketing and pricing and, and all those other things. Um, when I started company managing, I was really, I fell into it. I was uh, alluding to what you said about the train ride. Um, I was sort of low man on the totem pole at the Marvin Krauss office. And Marvin was a very uh, legendary general manager. He general managed a ton of shows. And I was kind of the person that got all the, I mean, I was literally the last person into the office, you know, in terms of uh, structure. So it was like, give that to Sue, give that to Sue, give that to Sue. Yeah. And uh, the company manager of Little Johnny Jones, Steve Callahan, was in D.C. supervising the load-in at the Kennedy Center. So somebody had to take the train with the, with the actors to get them down to the show. And yeah. it was like, well, send two. She's right. expendable. So <laughs> I got on the train with all the actors, and there was enough going on down there that Steve said, can you stay a few days? Okay. So I stayed 11 days, and then I finally got to come back and pack some clothes, and then I went back. <sighs> This and fancy. You're going yeah, on a road it was trip fancy. Too. Yeah, so it like was really like you know taking care of the actors, yeah. making sure they were comfortable in their hotels, you know, making sure that they were paid, you know, all of those kinds of things. Very hands on, and I did that in. Um, in Which that is, instance. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, and that's sort of what a company manager does. I think you, so, you, you, but there's you, also all these other so many layers right. to so it now. You deal with the actors, you deal with the... And you, and you deal with the box office, and you you know, you know do the settlements, and you're really the person between the general manager right. and the company. Gotcha. So, so one more question really quickly then, Sue. What does a general manager do? You well, mentioned the, some before. The general manager, the, the way the hierarchy works is the producer hires the general manager. The general manager works with the producer. You create the budgets, yeah. deal with all of the... Um, um, the, the the negotiation of the contract. I mean, it's it's like a business, huge job. It's a it's the very of it. business wow. of it. You yeah. know, there's a ton of business to it. Yeah. And then the company manager's show specific. So, um, and the company manager comes on board a few weeks before you go into rehearsal mm-hmm. to actually deal with the day to day elements of the show. Mm-hmm. Whereas the general manager is certainly supervising all of that, but maybe general managing three other shows at the same time. But the company manager's hired just per show to deal with Could that Could be running show. from the office to the theater to the office uh-huh, to the theater uh-huh. constantly where the general right. manager might just stay at the office. And, right. Exactly. Time. And you're saying that company management now in 2017 is more complex I than when you I think it's more complex and it could just be my perspective of it mm. now because it felt like, and again, when I started, I was the assistant and most of my work as the assistant was really kind of the hands-on yep. care and feeding, you know, and then what would happen often with a team, you've got a company manager and assistant and you just sort of divide and conquer based on strengths. Mm-hmm. So one of the jobs Charlie got me early on, we went out on the road with the first bus and truck of Chorus Line. Oh, my goodness. And he was the company manager, and I was the assistant. And he really liked doing the settlements and working with the theaters and working with the presenters and doing all of that. And he didn't really like the minutia of dealing with the company and the hotels and the buses and all that stuff. (laughs) And I liked that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the part about company managing I liked that um, I felt I was really good at was the sort of like taking care of people. Yep. 
And that was the part I really liked. And when I started to get buried into more of the paperwork and more of all of that and not at the theater as much, that's when I that's when I decided maybe that's not what I wanted to totally. do. Because what makes me happiest is to be around the work and yeah. to be in the room and to be at the theater, to be backstage, to be in the rehearsal studio. That's yeah. what I really Writing that love. train down with the actors. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so what was it like working on Little Johnny Jones? Well, it was a little chaotic because... Um, the tour had started, the show had actually started at the Goodspeed. Right. And uh, then it went out on the road with David Cassidy. Oh. Uh, and then David had some issues and had to, had to leave the company. And they brought, and that, but it was scheduled to come into New York. Mm. So uh, they hired Donnie Osmond. And the last, there were two stops before New York. It was the Kennedy Center. And then we went to Boston and then we were coming in. And so they hired Donnie to come in and do the Kennedy Center and then Boston and New York. And it was um, in the, the the nature of the beast with shows and when they happen, sometimes they happen on a schedule that doesn't work for everybody. Right. So it was difficult for Jerry Gutierrez, who was the director, to be there for part of it. So Dan Serretta, the choreographer, uh, did a lot of that. And so there was a lot of like um, chaos around the actual getting the show back together with mm. Donnie. Um, and then uh, Steve, uh, who was the company manager, actually got sick. So I ended up pulling in and taking a lot of the stuff that he couldn't wow. do because he had to go. He went in the hospital for a while. Wow. And then uh, so I took the show to Boston and came in with it. And we got killed. We got absolutely killed uh, by the New York Times. And um, I think it's because Donny Osmond at that point was uh, was very popular with a certain demographic, very. But, but not with Frank Rich of the New York Times. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And uh, um, uh, George uh, Cohen. Uh, yes, it's, you know revival, it's a big like, tap dancey you know, fun, and you know a throwback, a throwback, yeah. a throwback, and that wasn't what the Times was interested in, yeah. and we just didn't have the money. That was that was really painful because yeah. the opening night was the night they decided to close it. And basically, I had to go tell everybody to go clean out their dressing rooms. Oh, yeah. So you oh, had that yeah. job. Yeah. Gosh, that so was horrible. Was this, when did they decide? I mean, like, you, you that night. books, that, you know? That, is it after the reviews come yeah. out? Is it after the show curtain came down? When, did they when, go, when, when, when that New York Times review when came the review out. Came they out, said, that's, that's it, it, we're done. That's incredible. Yeah. Happy opening. Oh yeah, goodness. it was it's hard. Because, you know, I, look, everybody goes into a show trying to do their very best. Yeah. And there were a lot of young people in that show. A lot of people had been with the show, like, on the road. And that was the the idea was, I'm going to go out there and be on the road for a year so yeah. I can come into New York. And then to be, like, told to go clean out your dressing rooms. It was yeah, no, That was painful. Horrible. That was painful. I have two questions for you about mm-hmm. uh, little Johnny Jones. One, do you remember how long your preview period was? It wasn't very long because we'd been to D.C. We'd been to, you know, again, this is a long time ago. Yeah. So forgive me if I'm not telling you no, no, exactly no. what it was, but I don't recall it being a long time. It seems weeks. like in 2017 that musicals, when they come to Broadway, have much longer preview periods than mm-hmm. they did maybe 30 or 40 years ago. Why is that? Why has the preview period increased? In well, terms because of I don't think they've had the out of town. I mean, look at the shows that are opening now that maybe had one out of town mm-hmm. or maybe didn't even, yeah. you know, um, and and there's so much work. You know, if you come in, I, I tell people what I've learned over time working here in New York is you've got to have 90% of your show ready by the time you get it up in New York because it grinds so slowly. It's very expensive. Mm-hmm. You've got, you know, a ton of people. That, and you try to make one small change. And it involves all of these different departments. Oh and, and, you know, it's just, yeah. it's huge. And it's like a big machine. And so if you're trying to make big 
big structural changes or throwing out the uh, you know the eleven o'clock number and yeah. writing something new, it, it's really hard to do that with this big machine. So if you haven't had the opportunity to do a lot of that work elsewhere, and New York is your only place to do it, then you're going to have as long a preview period as you can possibly afford. I think that's my perspective. And then my second question for you, going back to the New York Times for a second, with all the social media that's out there today, Twitter, Facebook, and people's blogs, is the power of the New York Times dissipating any in terms of their review? Like you mentioned, Johnny Jones closed, and it was pretty much due to the fact that the Times gave it a very... I think it's less powerful than it once was. Less powerful. But I certainly think it helps. You know, it, it can't kill you, but it can certainly help. What's the cachet? What what makes that so special? I don't know. I think there's still a lot of people that for them, the Times is the standard bearer. You know, I had some friends come in to see the show from out of town, come see Come From Away from out of town, and they had all read that New York Times review. They'd seen that double truck ad. They, you know, they said, you're, you're a hit. The Times loved you. Wow. You know, and that's, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of people for whom the New York Times is yeah. still a very, very important, very powerful that's paper. It's not the only one for many people, but for some people it is. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So now we're going to jump back. Sure. Um, so let's go to Lacage. Yeah. Lacage. Oh. You know. No, I, it was so much fun to work on that show. We were out of town in Boston. I really, again, I was like the second assistant company manager, okay? okay? I was just out there because it was so big and there was so much going on. They just needed an extra hand, you know? I was the one who went out and got food for the crew between sure. shows. So I was really kind of a peripheral person, but I got to meet and work with all these wonderful, crazy oh. people and watch that show come together. And uh, to, and again, you know, Fritz was the stage manager on yeah. that show. And uh, to to watch him, mean, he was a fantastic PSM, and um, to watch him sort of make all of that work and working with George Hearn, and uh, it was just really magic. It was really magic. Let's talk about Fritz Holt for a second, mm-hmm. because he's a name that shows up so often in theater yeah. books, and maybe a new generation is not as familiar with no, him. No. So uh, you said he was a state PSM, he right? He was a PSM. What made him such a strong PSM? What what allowed him to get hired Well, I think it's why again? he also became a good, he became a good producer. He was one of those people who could handle the artistic as well as the sort of like the, the, the technical stuff. You know, and he could run a rehearsal and, you know, he could keep things moving. And he, you know, he had Arthur Lawrence over here and then he had George Hearn over here and then he had David Mitchell back here. Mm -hmm. And he was managing all those people and he was always sort of fun and gentle and grace. grace. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the sign of a good PSM. It's a sign of a good PSM, <laughs> the you know. People. And and it's We're also truly, you know, and, and if you if you're managing <laughs> yeah. all of these personalities and also managing to keep it all in perspective, I think that's important. It's huge. Yeah, I want to talk about a character actor who's no longer with us that I really like, and that's Jay Garner. Jay Garner, who? Yeah, yeah. Jay was in Lacage, huh. <clears throat> and that was they were a couple as that show was evolving. His his part got smaller, and songs went away, and oh. that was hard for him. I want to for him but but he ultimately was you know a very you know important part of that company Jay uh, was the governor in Bessel Whorehouse in Texas originally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then he was the the conservative
conservative father in Lakaj. Mm-hmm. And I was always curious. It seems like the part is almost like a cameo towards the end. I'm wondering yeah. what. A lot of that stuff got taken out in Boston. Oh, oh. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that got taken. That was really, I say, that's back in the old days where they really were putting that show up for the very first time. Yeah. In a commercial situation, we knew we had a deadline. We knew we had an audience. I mean, we were in the Colonial. That's not a huge house. Yeah. Um, there was, you know, and Theoni Aldridge sitting in the back with the, the beads and the feathers. I mean, it was just like ridiculous. <laughs> it was ridiculous. That. And the and the Kajels. And it was really, it was really and knowing in hindsight how well the show did, mm-hmm. I'm like, that's so glamorous. But in the, I mean, did you, did it yeah, feel that way? Yeah, there were doing? times, I mean, there were times where you're like, oh my God, are right. we ever going to get through this? You know, and it was winter and it was, it, there was, you know, and, and again, people were exhausted because it was nonstop. I mean, we had, and this is also, again, I'm dating myself, but this was back when you did all your copying, yeah. music copying by hand. And Matilda Pincus had, like, we had a whole floor of the, of the, of the hotel of music copyists, oh, yeah. like changing Talk about, things. That's where all the money goes oh, to with new shows. That's that right. When you want to throw out a number, maybe that's right. no one realizes you got to take right. the orchestrations, the copyists, that's right. all that stuff. That's right. And so they'd be money. working around the clock, yeah. turning stuff around. And, and if you've ever seen the old handwritten scores, I'm a music person, yeah, so yeah, I love yeah. it. That's true artistry. Those, yeah. Those, oh, yeah. yeah. And it's a real gift. I mean, that, that, yeah. that notating. And it was all, you know, by hand. And then you had one person doing the, you know, the trombone book and one person doing, yeah, it was pretty intense. It was a lot. Wild to see all that. Yeah. And it's all computerized now, right? Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's all yeah. just yeah. copy paste. I mean, it's still a ton of work. It's it still is. a yeah. ton of work, but it's a different kind of work. Yeah. My God, Almost definitely. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Uh, and did you stay with the show when it came to New York? Not really, not really, um, because I was not really the official assistant company mm-hmm. manager. I was just with it out of town, and it came in. I can't remember what they put me on. I think, I think I is this right the chronologically? Oh. No, was it Merlin? Was it Merlin? Did Merlin come in after Lacage? I can't remember because I was the assistant company manager on Merlin. What? Oh, you were. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. oh yeah, that was another one that we're going to talk about. Um, <laughs> I just figure out chronologically in my mind, yeah, in my course. feeble mind, I no, think no, no. I ended up on Merlin. So we're gonna, we're going to talk about Merlin because we've had a couple of guests who were involved with Merlin. Yeah. Oh, who? Well, we had Spence Ford. Oh, yes, Spence we Ford. We had Spence. We had Fred Mann. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, uh, they were both. I knew them both. I think I knew Spence initially from Dancing and then Chorus Line and Fred from yeah. the Chorus Line tour. Dang. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a oh, memory. Honey. Some, that's oh, a, I go back. You just like flipped it. You were like flip, 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 flip. Oh, yeah. I know him. Yep, definitely. Because you dealt with so many actors in your life. So the people that we've interviewed that have talked about Merlin before. Oh, George Leandrews. Duh. George that was our, Leandrews. Sorry, that was our big one. Oh, my God. Sorry. <laughs> he, he used to get in that ball before the show started. Yeah. And anybody who could be on headsets, we would be like peeing in our pants. He was so funny before before that show would start. Oh, my God. He was so funny. So everyone we've talked to about Merlin it talks about it from an onstage perspective. Mm, mm, you're, mm. you're coming at it from a... From oh, a, man. I that wish was you could intense. see Sue right now. That was intense. Again, Steve, Steve was the company manager and I was his assistant. <laughs> and... I know I like to talk about Merlin. I'm like, we went through, I can't try to figure out how many checkbooks we went through before we even started previews. That checkbooks? Checkbooks. We spent a lot. That was a very expensive show. There was, Holy you know, gosh. it was Doug Henning. There yeah. was magic. There were animals. There were, we changed directors. We, you know, it was intense. Right, um, was the, the first director was like a... Wasn't it? Am I thinking? Uh, of, no, uh, I've, I know that it was Ivan Frank Reitman, Dunlop. Frank Dunlop was yeah. involved, and then Ivan Reitman took then, over right, at some point. That's that's mm-hmm. a great film I, director. I, yeah, the, producer, I, I yeah. knew there was a director that was like not in mm-hmm. his element. Mm-hmm. Let's just say like, you know? it was intense. <laughs> it was intense. Nathan Lane, Cheetah Rivera. 
and you know, it was also very technically complicated for its time. Right. So there was a ton going on at the beautiful Mark Hellinger Theater. Aww. And um, my favorite moment of Merlin, of many, I have many <laughs> favorite moments of Merlin, was there was a blizzard. And uh, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to do the show. And we finally decided we were going to be able to pull it off. And everybody was there and the audience was there. And Marvin and I were standing in the back. And um, turns out the animals couldn't make it in from New Jersey. Oh, dear. Oh, God. Okay. So we had enough actors to do the show, but we didn't have the animals. And so Doug Henning came out and said to this audience, like in tears, we are ready to do this show for you. We want to do this show for you. But we can't because our panthers or whatever it is are stuck in New Jersey. And he, and they said, so each and every one of you, we'd like you to go and get your money back and come see the show another time. And Marvin and I are standing in the back of the house going, money. holy moly. And we ran to the box office because he literally told everybody in that house to go get a refund, which it wasn't a, it wasn't an official snow call. So it, people weren't technically, you know, entitled to a refund. He was like, go get your money back and come again some other time. And Marvin and I looked at each other and like ran to I'm the like, box office. The logistics oh of that alone Oh, it was insane. nuts. It was nuts. We all end. I mean, I can remember much later that night ending up at the bar at JR's, which is no longer there. Oh, like classic, single, classic, like, oh, the classic God. joint. Yeah, <laughs> it was intense. Oh. It was intense. But there were many, many, many funny moments on that show. I would kill to have seen that. Oh, it was something. Now I have to ask you. You don't have to reveal it. Did you know how the magic acts were being accomplished? Did I'm not allowed to talk. Some of them I did. Some of them I didn't. That's yeah. so aren't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even remember honestly, <laughs> but you know it's funny because there was that fabulous dress that she had, that red dress with the extensions, and the entire ensemble had them. Mm-hmm. And and you know the Goodspeed has a fabulous costume collection, mm. and so we got all, Goodspeed got all the clothes from Merlin. So. <laughs> I can't remember what show it was. They were putting the clothes together, and somebody pulled out that red dress and said, do you think we can rehab this? And I was like, please don't get put away. that. Please, get, please, <laughs> please don't put that dress on anybody on a show I'm working on. It just brought up so many memories. Oh, my God. <laughs> the cursed dress, the cursed <laughs> red dress. No, it's like I can now. I mean, and Cheetah was oh, so God. amazing and such a rock through all of it. It's like, that's Cheetah's dress. Would you just not yeah. give that to anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> People that have worked with her, they say that she's a leader. She is totally. just a leader. Totally. Is that, that, so that is true. Yes. And she leads with love. Mm. And uh, she, she, is very, she cares about everybody. And, and she's, she, when, she's a leader like a mom. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And everybody wants to live up to what her expectations are. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. She was terrific. Terrific to work with. And then do you want to ask about your your favorite Cheetah show after Merlin? The Rink. The Rink. Yeah. The Rink, The Rink, The Rink. Yeah. Uh, You know what? I left New York and I left management, company management after The Rink because nothing was ever going to be that much fun again. That's incredible. Nothing. There was no, I was never going to get another job as a company manager that was going to make me as happy as that show. And I just, I just needed to take a break at that time. And uh, I love that show so much. We had so much fun on that show. Um, I'll remind our our listeners. I know our listeners know this, but this is the Candor and Ed musical called The Rink starring Liza Minnelli and Cheetah Rivera. Cheetah Rivera, directed by Um, A.J. Antoon. That's right. Choreographed by Graziella Danielle. The great Graziella Danielle. Jason Alexander. Rob Marshall was our swing. 
doing. Um, Scott Ellis was in the ensemble. We've interviewed him. Uh, Lenore Nemitz was uh, was mm. Liza's uh, cover. It, it was crazy. And when Liza left, Stocker Channing came on. It was in a, it was a ridiculous. Mel Johnson and Ron Carroll, just this most yeah. ridiculous group of people. It was fantastic. Why? 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 Why were they so? Why was it I so? I don't wonderful? know. I mean, you think about all how all those talented people and those guys. I mean, most of them were like the ensemble, yeah. the roller skating ensemble. Right, because this is when they we call <laughs> so this cool. the rink. It takes place at mm-hmm. a roller skating rink. Right, France. a roller That's skating right, rink. When they existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it was just a group of people that, this, you know, and again, this is my perspective. I'm looking back on it with a lot of, a lot of years. And, and for me, it was my first real company management job in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and to go back to that whole issue of company managers and what they do, I moved my office down to the theater mm-hmm. during tech because it felt so wrong to be so removed from it up on 52nd oh, Street, you know, to down at the Martin Bet. And so I moved in with the stage manager. So we had just one big room. Yeah. So, so you knew what was going on. Yeah. I mean, how do you know what's going on if you're oh, 10 blocks you away? Got your finger on the particularly. Vein, yeah. so, so just being there and being part of that family. And we used to do crazy things. The stage manager was Ed Aldridge, who was Fred Ebb's partner. Mm. And Craig Jacobs was the assistant. And Craig Craig, lovely, lovely, lovely man, and funny as hell. We used to do backstage tours on Saturday, just makeup tours. We'd all like dress like tourists and go backstage and knock on Cheetah's door <laughs> and say things like, "Is this Rita Marino's dressing oh room?" <laughs> it was really fun. Oh my god! Yeah, we we had we had you know. Uh, we had award ceremonies. We, you know, we did all kinds oh, of things. It, like it was just fun. It was yeah. just fun. And that comes from the top. That comes Has from to. John and Fred. It comes from Cheetah. It came, I mean, and Liza was What's so, like? well, Liza was terrific through most of that. It's It got tough for her toward the end. Um, I think the eight a week is just tough. Yeah. It's tough on somebody like her. Yeah. That's not what she's used to. Totally. But she and Cheetah were so close and they had so much fun together. They it could was, tell, yeah. You could hear it even on the cast yeah. recording. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. totally. It was a great cast recording, totally. Way. It is yeah. great. Yes, that it's was so a, that was a great cast recording. Do you think yeah. we'll ever see it come back in New York at some point? You know, it's so funny. I was thinking about that just the other day because John came by the show and God love him, just had his 90th birthday, okay. and he was so supportive and so nice. And I was just thinking, you know, it's so great to see such a resurgence in in their work in their yeah. career yeah. because you know the rink was not well received. No, you're right. And the only reason it ran is because of Liza Minnelli, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of other things that season that really kind of. Um, uh, uh, kind of cast it in a shadow. Um, and and John and Fred were not anywhere near respected the way they are now. So True. it's been really great to see that kind of respect for their work mm-hmm. and to see it, you know, and I'm just sorry Fred's not here to see more of it, but yeah. um, it was a really special show and it, I think it got a little out of wonk because people were saying, oh, it's only there because of Liza Minnelli when really P- Liza was just trying to be part of the company, yeah. you know, yeah. people yeah. wouldn't let that happen. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't successful and uh, once she left, we really had about another three months with Stalker and okay. then it closed. So that's the one I'd love to see again, yeah. you know, and everything else is being looked at with a fresh eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Might as well. Can yeah. you speak a little bit about Fred Ebb? I, it's unfortunate that he's not here anymore, but he was quite a character and, and quite a, he, a personality. He, I think Fred was probably one of the nicest, loveliest people I have ever had the privilege to work with. And he was funny and he was charming and he was acerbic, but it was all, again, all done from love. He loved this business 
business more yeah. than anything. We used to go over. He and he and Eddie were very generous. They, you know, we had Thanksgiving there once. Mm-hmm. They they would uh, feed everybody. And Fred was a child of the um, depression. I can remember the first time I went over the apartment. It was like he, he was like, "You want a coke? You want a coke?" And he opened a shelf and there'd be like fifty cokes. And he's <laughs> like, "Well, I don't ever want to run out of anything because I remember what it was like." You oh. know. So it, he was, uh, but so generous and so kind and it was you know and it was fun because he and John would just hang out in Cheetah's dressing room it's like it was part of their lives it wasn't like you know you open a show and all the creatives go away yeah 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 oh very generous yeah Um, thank you how do you handle a star in a show um, and, and Eliza Minnelli, or you don't even have to mention her, but but it's a, I'm assuming it's a different tor- type of energy. It's a slightly different energy. You know, I don't do that much of it. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say that I, you know, for me, it's really you have to sort of find your way into them and what makes them tick a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and most importantly, is to understand how vulnerable they are. So you have to support them however you can, yep. you know, because they're out there, particularly if they're the, the box office for a show, they take that so seriously they take that responsibility really seriously and it may manifest itself in a lot of ways that aren't necessarily always clear Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so you have Mm -hmm. to kind of put yourself into understanding what it is they are and what they need and make them comfortable but I would say that's pretty much the way you have to think about working with anybody, yeah. particularly somebody in a a creative uh, form where they're not just doing their job. They're putting themselves out there. They're yes. putting their heart out there. Mm-hmm. You know, they're putting yeah. they're putting a lot out there. So, what yeah. is it they need to feel secure that they can do their to best do work? I guess. But I also I, I, I'm not. I, I don't do a lot of it because it's um it's it doesn't really work when you're developing new musicals because new musicals take so much time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's very rare you can get a star, you know, a star that actually matters in the box office, right. to give you the time you need to develop at that, that level. Show. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is why most new musicals don't really have mm-hmm. big stars. So have you always liked people? It seems like you're such a you're I such guess, a people person. I guess you know my dad was a people person, oh. and I watched him uh, operate. He was also in the National Guard. He was a he was a leader in the National Guard. Cool. So every once in a while, I get to go to something and watch him and watch the way he worked with people, mm. and especially with like the enlisted men, and you know. Um, and he was oh, he was a funny guy too. So it was it, so I got to see that as a kid, um, and I think that's why I was always drawn to theater because it's yeah. so collaborative and it's so people oriented. Mm. How yeah. does Goodspeed come into your life? <laughs> okay, so little Johnny <laughs> Jones, we talked about that. It, Michael Price, who ran the Goodspeed for forty mm. some odd years, yeah, wow. um, Michael was the executive producer on the show, and when we were in DC, he was there a lot. And uh, that's how I got to know him. And then really, I mean, little Johnny Jones was early 80s, maybe. Again, I, chronologically, I could be all over the place. Yeah. yeah. So um, it was 1985. We opened the rink. I closed that. Again, you know, Steve Callahan keeps coming into this story. Steve was up at the Goodspeed. They just opened the Norma Terrace Theater, and they were doing a new musical called Broadway Baby that Marvin had was involved with, Marvin Krauss was involved with. He was general managing it. It had, you know, outside money. And Steve was up there kind of keeping an eye on things. And Michael and Steve were having a conversation about the fact that the Goodspeed had opened the Norma Terrace, a second stage, just to do new musicals. Right. And they didn't really staff it to have somebody who actually dealt with all of that, yeah. you know. 
so Steve said, well, you know, Sue Frost is kicking around. She's decided she doesn't want to company manage anymore. Why don't you talk to Sue? So for our listeners, before the Norma Terrace was created, what was Goodspeed's function? Was well, it- Goodspeed is most famous for, for creating that little musical called Annie. Right. Um, b- uh, but also Man of La Mancha and Shenandoah. And it's, it's for those of you who don't actually know, the physical building is this beautiful little wedding cake. <laughs> like yeah. crazy, yeah. Yeah. crazy silly building on the uh, shore, on, on the on the Connecticut River. Yeah. And uh, it started out as uh, like a place for riverboats to stop. And it's been in existence as a theater for a while. There was a theater at the top of the, of the building. And it's a crazy space. It's tiny. It's ridiculous. Nobody should do musicals there. And they've been doing musicals there successfully since the 60s. And uh, <clears throat> was very much known... For a while, for reinventing classics, mm-hmm. you know, very good Eddie. You know, there's like that, yeah. a bunch of shows that came out, and they were transferred to New York. Yeah. To New York. Can, and what yeah. happened was that was in the 70s, yeah, when 70s. if if you may recall, if you know your theater history, because most of you aren't as old as I am, there was a real lack of product. Mm-hmm. On Broadway, mm-hmm. the because you know uh, Times Square was basically a crack den, right. um, and people didn't want to come there, and and the theaters were empty. So Michael had a great relationship with Bernie Jacobs, and uh, a couple of those those re- re- reconceived classics mm-hmm. got moved to theaters because there was really, and it's hard for anybody to imagine now that there's a, a lack of product, right, but right. there was a lack of product. Yeah. And so uh, that was like a whole exciting uh, time for the Goodspeed because a lot of those shows came moved from there to New York, okay, which good. brought more attention to the theater. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Michael, a uh, very smart man, he said, you know, we're going to run out of these old shows. We need to start bringing some totally. new stuff mm-hmm. in. Right. And, uh, and so Annie was the result of that. But Ooh. up until the Norma Terrace, which opened in 1985, all the new work was done either in the garage across the street or in the basement. And, and the town, you know, and the town was saying that's not what these buildings are meant for. And so somebody gave the good speed on old knitting needle factory in Chester, Connecticut, and they refurbished it into a 200-seat theater and then started to do new works. But they hadn't really come to terms with who was going to take on what is essentially a second space, three more shows, new shows, which take a lot of work. So Steve said to Michael, you know, Sue's kicking around. She doesn't know what you want to do. Maybe give her a call. And I literally went out there thinking I would be there for the summer. And I was there for twenty years. <laughs> oh, yeah. How old were you when you when you went out there? Uh, I was in my late twenties. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah. And you lived in East Haddam? I know. Well, I, I lived in area. I lived in that area. Yeah. I still live there. I live in Old Lyme, really? Connecticut. Yeah, oh, I moved. Nice. I I I got married there. I raised my daughter there. Yeah. Um, I had an amazing twenty years. <sighs> And so it was, and but it was that's where I figured out I wanted to be a producer, yeah. or that's what I was good at. Yeah, because I had to go with Michael, find these shows, work with the writers, put the teams together, develop the work, get it ready for an audience. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. 
Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Can you talk a little bit more about that in sure. detail? Like how would you, in the 80s and early 90s, how would you find new works? Well, you, you know. You couldn't YouTube people. <clears throat> no, you, you couldn't. You, and, you, you would, know, you would um, and again, you know, we certainly knew artists from working at the main opera house. Right. And you'd hear from a director that they were working on a piece. Mm-hmm. Or you'd hear from writers that they had a new show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'd start to get into that sort of circuit of hearing about when somebody's doing a reading. And they certainly were not not as prolific as they are now because back then there weren't that many new shows. But Mm -hmm. there were, pardon me, there were a lot of people trying to break into uh, that business. We did John and Jen. That was Andrew Lippa's first show. We did one of Janine Tesori's first shows. What was um, was Janine Tesori? Well, it was Galileo and then it got changed to Starstruck, which was about Galileo. It was a beautiful show. But, you know, a lot of things that we did, we did early career for folks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like John and Jen, Andrew wrote it. He was the assistant music director. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm working on this project. So we said, let's. Let's hear it. And then we said, well, let's do it. And and his friend, Jason Robert Brown, the 23-year-old music director, came up to do it. You know, it was that kind of a thing. So we just... And and then because it was a place that was doing new musicals and it was so rare, you'd get inundated with people. Mm -hmm. You know, people who were trying to get their work done. And, you know, there'd be showcases at BMI and ASCAP. And Mm -hmm. and so there's a a formula to it, you know. And so I spent a lot of time running back and forth to New York seeing stuff and meeting with writers and starting to put things together. What draws you to a piece? Um, first and foremost, I think it's the story. I think it has to resonate with me. It, I have to feel like it's going to resonate with an audience. No matter, even if it's a period piece, it just needs to say something that I feel is relevant. It needs to emotionally engage me. Um, and the score is, is critically important, but it's not the first thing I listen. I don't listen. I usually read first and then listen. Uh, and I think that is because I'm not a musician. I wasn't brought up mm-hmm listening to music like that I was more of a uh, more engaged in writing and, yeah. and and things like that so that's sort of where my my bent is so you yeah. find a great story mm-hmm. and you find a, an interesting way to tell a story and then you go oh god I hope the music's good totally. <laughs> right? <laughs> and one of the things it's funny because we learn and you learn it from doing the old stuff mm. because we would revive things that would have gorgeous scores and the books were crap yep. mm. and you could Classic. never you could never really fix it no. You know, you could never really fix it if the book was crap, mm-hmm. even if you tried. It had to have a, that story had to make sense. There had to be a reason to tell that story. So I guess that's. The story is the. Yeah, the story, yeah. Was there one in your 20 years at Goodspeed that you were the proudest of? Yeah, I'm not going to play favorites. You're I not going to play that. favorites. Mm-mm-mm. There were several I was very proud of. Um, but uh, there were so many beautiful shows that I worked on and such great writers. And I always feel like if I go on record with like one favorite. Sure. Uh, I'm, you know, it's, I have to be fair to all my children, you know. Yeah, yeah um, there you go. Were there any that got robbed that you could say? Many yeah. got Damn, robbed. I wish that that's Many got yeah. robbed. That it's been... actually why I quit. Um, it was frustrating for me yeah. to to do all this work and see how hard everybody else was working. Mm. And because I was doing the, and I, I did six shows a year. I did three at the terrace and three on the main stage. And as soon as you get a show up, you're on to the next. And it was very frustrating for me to see these shows 
like sort of not happen the way they should yeah. happen. And I didn't have it in me to do it. I didn't have the energy. I didn't have the wherewithal, nor was it my job, but it was very frustrating. And and so it, it, this idea of needing to know there's a pipeline for this work mm. and creating these partnerships and how this work gets... And it's, it's sort of how I met Randy. It was through... Um, National Alliance for Musical Theater, where we all kind of, those of us who were passionate about new work, were trying to find ways to get it out there. And not every show was going to come to Broadway, but there's a lot of great stuff that doesn't need to come to Broadway, but it sure would be nice if it got produced in a bunch of places so the writers could make a living and the work could get out there, you know, so. Tell the story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow. How come, uh, how come you became a PA on Most Happy Fella in 92? Oh, um, I was the, um, because it originated with us, and then it was done with uh, Center Theater Group and Lincoln Center. There was nobody at either Center Theater Group or Lincoln Center to kind of shepherd it, Yeah. so I did. And that was, uh, I had a great relationship with Jerry, Jerry Gutierrez. And, um, From before, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, it just needs, you know, every show... Every show needs a shepherd. Every every show needs somebody to keep an eye on it. You can't, it doesn't just happen if there's just a lot of people kind of looking. You know, right, I mean, you right. just need somebody. Somebody needs to be the. And I was like the liaison between Center Theater Group yes, and Lincoln Center yes. on the show. Now, Jerry Gutierrez is a director <clears throat> that also is is someone that everyone who's worked with him speaks so highly. What He's made a wonderful him, director? What made him such a wonderful director? Uh, he just he was a genius. He was a genius. He could be very difficult. Mm. Um, it was, and if he wasn't happy, it was hard. But he had such passion for his work, um, and he—it's one of those people when when he succeeded, he succeeded like nobody else. And then there were these moments of sort of epic fail, mm. where it was just because you know he had an idea in his head and it just didn't work. Mm. But it always came from the right place. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. I loved working with Jerry. He, he could he, he could make a lot of people uncomfortable, but he never made me uncomfortable because he was just, I just knew he was just his striving for perfection. You oh. know? Yeah. How early do you start giving notes in your process? Um, depends on the show. Depends on the writers. Depends on when I come on board with it. Um, very often, if I'm looking at a piece to take on, and I say I, now that I'm a part of a company, it's not just me, <clears throat> but back when I was at the Goodspeed, for example, um, I would give a general kind of sense of what I thought the show needed. And f- it was really important to me to know that what I thought the show needed was also something that the writers thought the show needed because you don't want to walk into a relationship wanting two different things because you're never going to win. Totally. You're just never going to win. Um, so that was... Uh, that. So you come in, but I don't do like that sort of nitty-gritty note stuff until we're at that point where we need to make nitty-gritty changes. So it's kind of like that general, this is what I'm feeling is working, this is what I'm feeling is not working, how do you see us getting there, mm-hmm. what, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then as you get, it gets more granular the farther along you get. <clears throat> do you feel that the notes that you're giving that you're putting on the lens of an audience member, so you're an audience advocate, or, or from what point of view? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, pretty much, because, you know... It, I say to people all the time, please, please don't. And again, because you're, when you're managing other people who have opinions, you say, please don't tell them how to write it. 
Right. Tell them what's not working for you. Let them figure out how to write it. That's right. not your job. So it's like, you know, this is still not, I'm, I'm watching the audience. This is where they get a little, you know, look at their watch, look at their mm. playbill, or I don't feel like that laugh is where, I mean, specific stuff once you actually have an audience. Yeah. But earlier on, I'm looking at it with more of an overview of the show versus, you know, directorially, I would do this, or that song's not really working, and here's how I would fix it. You know, it's more like kind of from a from a little bit of a distance. Yeah. 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 Do you like to be in a rehearsal every single day, or do you like to um, come and go? I like to stop in a rehearsal every day. I don't feel I need to sit there. I think that's distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to be around enough so that people think of us as part of the show and not the suits who come in with the checkbook. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm going to fire um, you, yeah. We're there for critical things, uh, run-throughs. You're working on a specific thing that I know has been problematic. I'd like to come in and watch that. I never go in the room when the director's working one-on-one with an an actor. That's not my place. That's not my business. Um, I, you know, if we're working on a big dance number and it's a bigger, broader thing, I might come in and sit in for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. But but I also, whenever we're in production, I always make sure I get to rehearse at least once a day just because you got to remind yourself why you're doing it. Right, yeah. Right. You know, Art, yeah. you're not doing it to sit at a computer or write checks or write checks. You, yeah. That's not why. Well, that's not why I'm doing it. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you were at Goodspeed, not necessarily a show, but what was one thing you were very proud of in your 20 years at Goodspeed? And like I said, doesn't you don't have to mention a specific show. No, you know, I, I'm very proud of the fact that we did work with so many people so early in their career. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very proud of the fact that I've, I've you know, I worked really hard to create a, spa- a safe space for people to work. I'm also really proud of the fact that, you know, we started a, a, a partnership with NYU with the Graduate Writing Program. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and the festival of new artists that that has become hugely successful up there. That started when I was there because it was so important to me to see you know, new generations of people come along. It was important to me to have writers work with actors really early on, you know. It's so hard for writers that aren't getting produced because they just, they're writing for themselves. They're writing in their own head. And sometimes it's, you know, get in the room with an actor and figure out how how you're writing it kind of together. And so that was a great thing that happened while while I was there. I wouldn't say I was, you know, responsible for it, but But. I I, 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 I kept pushing (laughs) until it happened. Trying to find a little money for it, (laughs) you know, and and merge that relationship with Sarah Schlesinger and. So it was, um, it was, uh, that was fun. That was fun to see, see this sort of like, um, this sort of. Engagement stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's still going on. Oh, I feel yeah. like I know writers that go up there. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. You know, and and they've got the Mercer and, Colony now. And it's so wonderful. Yeah, for them. and I, I mean, feel like I feel like I was a big part of making that possible. Definitely. So why leave? Um, I had been there for 20 years. They were going to give me a party, um, and I feel like ooh. when they're going to give you a party, it's time to go. <laughs> But I also, I was at the point in my life, my daughter was um, 12, I think, at the time. So okay. we'd been, th- and and uh, I felt, and I was 50. I was turning 50. And I said, you know what? If you don't do something new now, you're just not going to do it. Wow. You know? And um, I felt like I had at least one more big adventure ahead of me. Yeah. So I just quit. <laughs> and then tried to figure out what to do. 
It's okay. ridiculous. Which I don't, I don't like suggest it. It's a terrible financial plan. It's a really bad financial plan. And you got a Tony with your first you know, picture. I, so. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> so. I wouldn't have gotten that Tony if I hadn't put all those years in. Right. You know, learning my craft and working with artists and and all of the work that I did. Yeah. But I felt I felt like it was time to do something new. I felt like it was time. And I said I was so frustrated. I see all this great work and nothing's happening with it. And um, we didn't initially set out to just produce Broadway shows. And I don't think that that is our intention. Good. But we realized once we started the company early on that if you don't actually work on Broadway you're not going to be taken seriously mm-hmm. in terms of the bigger picture. And you can theorize about it all you like. But when you're doing it, it I mean, it's hard, yeah. hard, hard work. And so uh, you have to do it. You have to do it and experience it. Let me ask you, these shows that you liked so much that weren't going anywhere, why weren't they going anywhere? Was it lack of producers? Lack of attention, lack of producers. Um <clears throat> Maybe they weren't um, the most commercial pieces, you know. Um, a lot of these shows were not necessarily slam dunk commercial pieces. And then, then I went through this phase. <clears throat> pardon me. I went through this phase where later on in my tenure, there shows started to come with producers. Oh, oh. and. I welcomed that mm-hmm. as long as we could have a mutually beneficial relationship because I felt like then at least the shows had a chance mm-hmm. to, 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 to have a life. And, you know, some of them maybe didn't need to have a huge life, but should have had the chance for that second production yeah. to learn more. Mm-hmm. I, very, very early on when I was standing in the back of the house with a writer, it was the first performance of a show. And he said to me, he turned to me, and he said, you know, it's the first time anybody's paid money to see anything I've ever written. Oh. And I went, huh, that's interesting. That's a perspective I hadn't had before, you know. And I had been pushing for some stuff and some changes, and I wasn't necessarily immediately getting them. And I thought, I get this now. There's, there's, There's just like the reality of what it's like to actually get your baby up there and then have people judge it, you know. So, you know, how you sort of like create that environment where people can feel good about maybe dressing the baby a little yeah. differently yeah. or, you know, whatever that is. But it was a, it was sort of an aha moment for me very early on as a producer where I thought, okay, I, I'm only looking at this from my perspective. Right. I need to think about every what everybody else is thinking. How do you protect <clears throat> writers and directors on new projects from 90 different opinions, from outside sources? Themselves. Themsel- yeah, yeah, themselves, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, again, every show is different, and some some are more protectable than others. Mm-hmm. I, I have failed, you know, absolutely failed to do it um, for whatever reason. But when when I have been successful, it's because we've had the time to build a relationship and a, a real relationship of trust where we're all listening to each other and we're, we're trying to protect the peace. Mm-hmm. And by protecting the peace, you're protecting everybody who's part of the peace and knowing that by the time you've worked through a lot of this stuff that everybody wants the same thing. You, there are very, very practical things to protect people. When you know we do a show, you've got a ton of names above the title, you've got a ton of investors, you've got a ton of people who have opinions. They all have to come to us. Nobody talks to the director. Nobody talks to the writer about stuff. That's not fair, mm. you know. And, and, and you, nobody, you, you have to protect your your creative team because all they hear is, "Oh, a producer told me this." It's like, no. If it has to come from me or Randy, right? 
and then we'll talk about it. And we filter a lot of that stuff out. Yeah, of course, yeah. How did you and Randy hook up with each other? Like I said, we were both on the board of the National Alliance for Musical Theater, mm-hmm. and he was the managing director of Theater Works in Palo Alto. Oh. And he was doing, they had started a New Works thing there. Yeah. And actually, they started their New Works thing kind of in uh, in discussion with me, like, how did you do it? Yeah. Blah, blah. It was so, like the West Coast <clears> version in that's a way. Right. I've always thought of them as That's right. As that. And we were doing a lot of the same uh, we would do that's where that sort of uh, oh look if Randy's developing it I've liked a lot of the stuff he's yeah. done let me look at that maybe we should do the next production so Came there was a lot of that sort of informal collaboration so we realized we have very similar tastes good and very similar working styles and uh, so when I quit and was trying to figure out what I was going to do I was tossing a lot of ideas back and forth with him just mm. to get his opinion and he said well you know let's just do this together and I said, well, you've got a job. He goes, well, you had a job. Didn't stop you from quitting. So he quit his job, again, after 20 years. And uh, his partner uh, is an actor who is based in New York. So he moved to New York, and uh, we started the company. And then a few Which mo- is junk- Junkyard Dog. dog. Yep. And then a few months later, a mutual friend also through NAMPT put us, um, uh, introduced us to Kenny and Marlene El Hadif, who mm-hmm. are based in Seattle. And uh, they were looking for uh, an opportunity to get more involved in new works, and uh, we hit it off and uh, formed uh, uh, the four-legged dog. And how did that name? Uh, who, who's okay, this goes for back to that. I'm this sure is my story. story. No, no, no. When Randy and I decided we we're going to start uh, working together, we had to form a company, and we were both. I was still at Goodspeed. He was, or I was just finishing up at Goodspeed, and he was still at Theater Works, and we were going to a NAMP conference in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I said, "Let's just come away with it, with a name for the company." And it's not going to be Randy Sue production. So let's let's go. Let's at least come back from totally. this conference with that. So we were in this discussion of how to turn musicals, movies into musicals. Mm. And uh, Darcy and Dean from MGM were on the panel, and uh, Michael Kirker was on the panel, and Dean Pitchford, who wrote oh, both Foot- the movie and yes. the musical of Footloose. Yeah. And they're talking about you know back and forth, blah blah blah. And Dean finally says, "You know what? You can talk about it all you want, but no new musical happens unless it's got a junkyard dog yapping at its heels." And Randy and I looked across the room at each other. And we went, "That's amazing!" <laughs> yeah. So that's where I came from, Dean Pitchford. Thanks, Dean. Uh, I don't Thanks, think I've ever Dean. told him that, but that's yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. And did you know initially that the mission was going to be just new works? Yes, mm. new musicals. New musicals. Because Randy and I both felt so strongly after all of our time mm-hmm. working on them that it was the probably the, the most underserved community. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they're the most challenging to do. And so we decided to really keep uh, a, a, a real hard focus on it. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible financial model and it, it, because every show takes like for freaking ever. Yeah. Um, but it's what we love to do. And are we talking not based on movies? I mean, original. No, okay. by original okay. meaning that the authors are still alive and they're gotcha. still working on yep. it. Um, so, yeah. But okay. each one, actually each one that we've done, the three that we've done on Broadway have all been completely original. I love that. Yeah. We, yeah, we both love that. And, love and we know our audiences love that as well yeah. because it's yeah. it's so, it's rare. It's well, rare you, because it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. hard. And it would have been very easy for you to say, we're just going to do, you know, a revival of MAME and we'll get a star and we'll sit right. back. Right, but and, that didn't interest us. Yeah. Other people do that better, you know? And somebody said to me once, why don't you just do a play? I'm like, I don't know how to do plays. Yeah. Other people do plays better than me. I don't yeah. know how to do plays. Yeah. You get to a point in your life. It's like this is my skill set. It's not. Very, it's not. You know. It's not marketable for a lot. Yeah. But this is what I do. 
So I might as well just focus on what I, I might just like focus really. what I can do. And well, the first one was Make Me a Song, is that correct? Make or? Me a Song was a little bit, yeah, that was actually, we needed to get our feet wet. Ah. And Billy uh, called me, because I had known Bill, Bill, um, Bill, Finn. Bill, Bill Finn did a residency up at the Good Speed many years ago. He was working on a project, and we hit it off. We got to be very good friends. And so he knew I was starting this company, and we were going to start to try to do something. And um, uh, he called me, and Make Me a Song had been done at Hartford, uh, uh, Theater Works in Hartford. Rob Ruggiero directed it. And he said, come take a look at it. I know you're just looking to get started. Maybe this is something to to think about, to mm-hmm. get started. And we saw it. And, you know, I love Bill's work. Mm-hmm. And it did seem manageable. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. I mean, we didn't. Randy, we didn't have any idea what we were doing. But that's never stopped me before. So, <laughs> so yeah. So we decided to, to try to make that work. And it had its ups and downs. But we eventually got it on at New World Stages, and we're very proud of it, and we couldn't sell tickets. But to be fair, you, you mm. did know a little bit what you're doing, because you, you were a producer for so many years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I knew how to realm. do I know how to do the show. Yeah. It's all that other stuff. But like raising money and all that. I mean, exactly. like you had to like actually exactly. knock like, All okay. that other stuff. And it was and at New World Stages, I'm sorry. It was at New World Stages, yeah. and it was just really hard to... And it was um, the, the, the stagehand strike. You know, so everything kind of closed down and uh, we just couldn't get traction. And it's hard. I think I think producing commercially off Broadway is really difficult. And that was a five person show with a piano. And it was hard to make our nut because you have to spend so much money advertising and marketing and getting it out there. And and the ticket prices aren't that different from a Broadway discount. Um, So it, it really didn't ever take off the way we hoped it would. It gets done. It gets done. Sure. But Isn't it doesn't get done. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah, we did yeah, a recording of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Where do you search for investors? Do they come to you? You come to them? Um, mostly they've come to us because of the shows. Mm. Um, it, it, again, each show is different. When we, start the, when we started raising money for Memphis, it was basically, we started out, the early money went to people who knew the show. It was originally, had originally been done, um, produced by George W. George and done as a co-production at North Shore Music Theater and Randy's Theater in Palo Alto. And, um, and then uh, it did not get well received critically at North Shore, so it was very difficult to get attention out in Palo Alto. And ultimately, George um, had some ill health, and the show just didn't happen. So when Randy and I started Junkyard, we said, we need to find a show that's not in early, early development. We need to find a show that's sort of, like, what was the show that never right. got its due? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And Memphis was a show that even in its early flawed stages, audiences loved. Mm. They loved. They loved the music. They loved the story. So, and we had stayed in touch with Joe and David, and um, we reached out to them, and they said, funnily enough, George's rights are lapsing. And we said, These are the writers yeah, you're talking about? Yeah, uh, Joe DiPietro and mm-hmm. David Bryan. Yep. And funnily enough, the rights are lapsing. And we said, well, funnily enough, we're, funnily enough, yeah. enough, we're starting a new company. And what do you think about let's doing this together? And they were just crazy enough to say yes. And... Um, Chris and Chris Ashley and Joe DiPietro had actually met working on a show at the Good Speed. Mm. So that happened. And then um, Kenny Marlene came on board with Junkyard. And a lot of it was when we sent Kenny Marlene stuff that we were working on, they fell in love with Memphis big time. Mm. So that was the Seattle connection. Chris Ashley ultimately, while we were working on the show, got the job at La Jolla. So we started putting all those pieces wow. together as we were all kind of finding the show together. 
That's incredible. I don't even remember what the first part of this question was, but uh, I went off on a no, weird tangent. Why, well, you went exactly where I wanted to go. I mean, <laughs> oh, where, where I was you? curious how Memphis came into your yeah. came into the realm and yeah. how you yeah. know. It, yeah. Yeah. And it seems like there was an element of, of tenacity on your side, but also a little bit of luck, too. I mean, like, you know, with Ashley getting the La Jolla game. Always. You know, and, yeah. You know, and it's a funny thing about shows. And and, and Come From Away is a perfect example. Mm. There are shows that the doors open up for, and mm. there are shows that the doors close up. <laughs> and, and you don't necessarily always recognize it at the time. Mm. But you have to be alert to it. And Come From Away is a show that the doors kept opening for. Yeah. And Memphis too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with Memphis, like you said, it, it wasn't well received up in up Boston. In, well, and it was, it was because yeah. it was, again, brand new show, two weeks of rehearsal, two days of tech, go. Oh. It just wasn't ready. And George, in his enthusiasm, had invited the world to uh, see the show. Uh, and you know, you get one chance with a lot of people. Right. And I mean, I can remember when we took Memphis on and we decided we were going to like go big or go home. Mm. We, we did a presentation again at New World Stages, but in the bigger house, brought in a full band, brought in as many of the actors as we could pull together from uh, the two productions and did a 45 minute presentation of it. And I had to pull teeth to get people to come. And they're like, I saw that show at North Shore. It's not very good. I said, that was like five years ago. Yeah. We've been working on it. Different director. Come on. Yeah. But I had to like talk people into it. Wow. And they came and they were like, whoa, is that the show I saw at North Shore? I said, well, yeah, this is what happens yeah. when you keep working on yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but yeah, sometimes you just have to explain that to people. Yeah. I'm curious, <laughs> going a different direction now, uh, when you look at the Memphis, uh, the, the poster, let's say, and you see the producers and you do mm. see Junkyard Dog first, first, mm-hmm. and then you see a couple other All those other names. names. And I and and, and th- this may be my ignorance, but I'm just curious, uh, and I think our listeners may be. How do you? How does everyone commute? How, <laughs> how in the world does you, everyone have a voice or not have a voice or who's the leader? I mean, I, well, junkyard junkyard is the leader, right? Uh, and then you, um, I spent a great deal of my time communicating with my co-producers, sharing information with them. Uh-huh. Um, we have. Uh, quarterly meetings where we you know meet and talk about the marketing and all of that kind of stuff right. it, it, it's uh, it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky beast yeah. there's a great deal of um uh, expertise and uh, not necessarily theatrical expertise, but financial expertise. Yeah, there's, business, there's, yeah, yeah there's yeah. a lot of people who are primarily business people. There are theater people who bring something to the table. But as I was saying earlier, too many voices it confuses people. Yeah. So, so you know, Randy and I try to wrangle the voices and. Um, we're also really clear up front. We were really clear in Memphis. We were really clear on Come From Away. We would love to have you on board, and uh, we realize billing's important to you, um, uh-huh. but we we can't have too many voices in the room, and if that makes right. you unhappy, then don't come on board. Incredible. Yeah, you just have to be really clear up about front. expectations. And and again, you know, there's some people, uh, there, people that you want their opinions, you want their thoughts, you want it all. You just have to figure out when you hear it mm-hmm. and how you share it. 
do you set levels in terms of investment? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, I don't. You know, it's sort of the way the business is right yeah, now. Yeah, tell us about this because we're curious. Well, I mean, I, when we first started raising money, you know, I talked to a few other producers. I said, sort of, how do you do it? And there's kind of a framework for it, and some of it has to do with how much money you actually have to raise. And you know, if you look at those, there's, there's, you, you can just the way it is is the people who have either invested or raised the most money are at the top, and then it sort of comes down, and then you there's a threshold after which it's like you don't get billing. You don't get, you right. know, whatever that is. And um, and you make that determination based on how much money you have to raise and how hard it is to raise, mm-hmm. you know? Uh-huh. And, um, and, and some of the folks who came on board very early, the only thing they wanted was the billing, you know? And they were willing to take the risk to get the billing. Because they really want that. And huh. and for us, beca- and, and because it's, pr- you know, you take a, I mean, surely come from way, people who are involved with that show as co-producers and investors, they love the show. Yeah. They came on board because they love the show. They're proud to be a part They're of that proud process. to be a part of it. Yeah. So, um, and we're happy for that, yeah. you know? I mean, other people are maybe less generous with the billing. Other yeah. people are maybe even, you know, uh, tighter than we are in terms of sharing information. That's their thing. Right. It's this is on the, the way we we do it. And can other producers that you have on your team uh, be give their it's their own money and then some are actually getting money some from others? Some of them raise it, some of them. So it's, it's their there's own. no differentiation mm. when you're a producer. You Mm-mm. could be using your own money or Right. 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 What's what is your is there a minimum that an investor has to invest with you? Like to say ten thousand or fifteen thousand? Every show determines what that minimum is. Some of it's as low as ten, some of it's twenty five, mm-hmm. sometimes it's fifty. Again, it depends on whether it's going to be hard to raise that money or easy yeah. to raise that money. Uh, what for you was the easiest for Junkyard Dog in terms of raising money? What was the easiest one? Where oh, come from away. Yeah. No, no. By the time we were, by the time we left La Jolla, we basically had all the money sketched in. <laughs> what was the most challenging? Um. I mean, they all have challenges. They all have challenges. Memphis was, I mean, Memphis was our first Broadway show. Um, We had um, people who came to that. Actually, you know, Barbara and Buddy Freitag came to that first presentation of Memphis and totally fell in love with the show and became our partners. And they really helped us get to La Jolla. And then people saw the show in La Jolla and helped us get to Seattle. And then people saw the show in Seattle and helped us get to New York. But we still had to struggle for that last bit of capitalization. So we were raising that money right up until early previews. And the way we raised it was we brought people into rehearsal. Wow. And they saw the show and they loved the show. Yeah. But, you know, you have to think of it from a from a business person's point of view. Somebody works in this business, they see a show called Memphis, the title means nothing. Yep. There's nobody on the creative team that really has any major clout. Yep. I mean, Chris... Chris had some, but not a ton. Right. Joe had some, but not a ton. David's a rocker. You know, Junkyard I mean, Dog, who the hell are they? Right. You know? I mean, I'm sure, yeah, most people said that show's going to open and close. Right. There's no way. No big star. I mean, no, like, exactly. All those time, things. All those no. things. I had all those things against it, except that we were so freaking stubborn, we were not going to give up. Yes. So, um, but yeah, I'm sure. And so that was a hard raise. Mm. And there was very little, what you'd call, like, typical New York, money in that show. Yeah. Because people are like, why would I put money into that show? How, you know, you, unless they saw it. Right, right. And when they saw it, they were like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. How do you pitch uh, to people who haven't seen it yet? Either this or first date or... or- um, well, it, you know, you, you have to have a, a good 
financial package. It has to make sense financially. You have to say, this is what the show's going to cost. This is the potential growth. This is, you know, what you could stand to make. These are the reasons why we think it's going to do well. Um, these are the reviews we garnered out of town. These, you know, there's mm-hmm. any number of things. Again, with First Date, it was primarily people who saw the show in Seattle and loved it. Mm-hmm. So we haven't had to do a ton of raising from people that have no experience with the show. Um, La Jolla is a regional theater, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. So how does that work? It's it's a regional theater with a subscription base. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're guaranteed an audience. They're guaranteed mm-hmm. ticket sales. How does that financial model work where you're a commercial producer putting a show into a regional house? Um, basically, the way it works is you the, the regional theater will say, this is basically what we would put into a show. This is what this show is going to cost. Can you come up with the differential? Mm-hmm. And then the conversation begins. And so with both Memphis and with Come From Away, we already set up the partnership uh, that it was going to be, uh, for Memphis, it was La Jolla and then Seattle Fifth Avenue. Mm. And with Come From Away, it was going to be La Jolla and Seattle Rep. Mm-hmm. So it was really kind of a three-way conversation. And we looked at what all the costs were and how we were going to share them and and to try to come up with an equitable way to share them. Mm-hmm. Because, and not only that, sharing the expenses up front and then making sure that people are equitably compensated on the back end. Right. And did you need, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned this earlier when you were talking about developing shows, but you, you took two out-of-town city tryouts where, like we were saying earlier, some Broadway shows don't even do, do that one, anymore. Yeah. You know? How important were those tryouts? And critical. Did, did, did the shows change They were critical. The you know, some of it's artistically critical, so you have the time to continue to work on sure. it, but it's also from a marketing point of view, from a fundraising point of view, right. what you learn from the audience, what, you're, what you, how you figure out how to sell a show. Yeah. Um, with Memphis, and, and again, because Randy and I are both of the regional theater, mm-hmm. we understand the value that each and every stop brings along the way, mm-hmm. as long as it makes sense. So, And we wanted to structure it in such a way, I can never forget somebody, after Memphis like opened and was successful... Somebody said, you know, how did you figure that out? That, you know, do that and then take three months off and do it again. Like, I, everybody should do that. I said, well, yeah, everybody should. But, you know, <laughs> you got to plan it really far in advance. Because yeah, yeah. the way the regional theaters work, they're booking their seasons right. way far out. So so you've got to engage and you've got to figure out what each brings. I mean, initially, we were going to do a page to stage in La Jolla of Memphis and then do the full production in Seattle at the Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. And we did a 29-hour reading work session and the guys got so much work done that Chris said to us afterwards, he goes, I think it's a kind of a waste of time and energy and money to just do a page to stage. I think we need to layer the choreography page on. To stage? Page to stage is just much more of a, bo- uh, uh, a bare bones, uh, uh, not fully produced, gotcha. less time, less money spent on mm-hmm. it. Um, and so it was going to be more like exploring the text and the music. Uh-huh. But he said, I think it's time to layer the dance onto this. I think it's time to really see how the show moves. So we said, okay, we agree. We went to the Fifth Avenue and said, how do you feel about this being a co-production versus you guys doing the... And they said, fine. Mm-hmm. It was more expensive to do it this way, certainly. Right. And it was we Got had to work production. a little harder. Yeah. Yeah. And those early productions... And the reason why people don't do more than one is they're expensive. Yeah. And raising that money is the hardest money to raise because you are... That's where you're dealing with people on, you know, like blind faith. Yeah. It's like, we're going to do this, we're going to spend a million dollars, and we have New York. no idea <laughs> right. if the show's going to wow. move. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Terrifying. It's terrifying. Um, (laughs) How do you come up with a marketing campaign? Obviously, you have um, an office that you've hired to Mm -hmm. to help Mm -hmm. you with this. But how active are you 
Very active. And very active. Um, we brought our team on as early as Clint Bonds, our marketing director, strategist, Matt Polk, and his company are our press right. agents. They came on board as early as La Jolla in terms of like, we want you to be around. I mean, they weren't actively working on it, but we wanted them to see it. We wanted to be talking with them about it. Um, and then, uh, and then, uh, we put together the rest of the team before we actually got to Seattle. So they knew they were working on the show, AKA. And then, mm-hmm. so, and then art houses are digital. So we put that team together really early on so they could at least know what the show was. Yeah. But we were really sort of, and part of why we wanted, with Come From Away, we went out of town for four four different engagements, but that was strategic. We needed to learn what the show was and how audiences would respond to it and how to sell it and how to talk about it. So how are you selling Come From Away? Um, well, right now, Come From Away is, right, and it's all sort of like, um, uh, it starts with the word of mouth from the other th- theaters, you know, and the way we're selling it now is different from the way it was sold in La Jolla. La Jolla sells it as a brand new musical directed by our artistic director. Don't necessarily hit hard on the 9-11 component of it. You don't dance away from it, but you don't hit hard on it. That's really what sort of the initial, and then people started to see it, and then word of mouth just sold it. Mm. Seattle was the exact same thing. We've got these great reviews from La Jolla. This is a new musical. We haven't done a new musical for a long time. They wanted to hit the 9-11 thing hard because they said, we need context. And Seattle Rep, that's a play-going audience. It's not a musical. Oh, interesting. And so they liked the fact that it was really about something. So uh, we had numerous conversations before they put their TV commercial out because we were like, are you sure you want to say that? And then we said, you know what? This is dumb. As producers, we're in these markets to learn. Let them do. They know their market. So... So that was how that worked. And then we started to build, and it was a different conversation in D.C., of course, because we wanted to go to D.C. because they were directly impacted by um, 9-11 there. We wanted to see how it resonated there. Uh, They had a slightly different messaging there. But again, every, every step of the way, once the show opened and people were seeing it and got the reviews, it just, it was a limited run. They just sold out. So then it became less about that and then more about by the time we got to Toronto, it was a Canadian musical. Right. Right? Right. We had just gone to Gander, Newfoundland and gotten more press than any show should ever get. (laughs) Amazing. You know? And most of it was Canadian press. And then again, it was that other thing. Once people saw it, gone. They had eight weeks, gone. So so now we're coming to the tough market. We're coming to New York City, 9-11, touchy, touchy subject. Um, One of the things that happened when we went down to the 9-11 Museum in the summer before D.C., what the docent said, you know, and over here is the 9-12 area, and we're like, the what? She's the 9-12, you know, the, the good stories, the stories of the good stuff that came out. And we said, well, that's us. Yeah. So we really kind of pitched more toward the 9-12. We also came out of the, the museum, which is, if you haven't been there, it is a very powerful and very emotional experience. We decided we wanted to move away from any kind of plane imagery, um, you know. So we stopped calling the come from the come from aways. Initially, they were called the plane people. That's oh, what the that's what the Newfoundlanders called them, the plane people. Yeah. Oh, they also called them come from aways. But we said we also move away from plane people and let's move toward come from aways because it also reinforces the title. Yeah. So this is like I mean this is like two years yeah. of like analyzing and thinking and you know you know does this work did this work you know yeah. but no. Ultimately, we come into New York. By the time we came into New York, 250,000 people had seen the show. 
So they were talking about it. Social media was very important. Mm-hmm. We were calling. It was a 9-11 show. It was not a 9. It was a 9-12 show, not a 9-11 show. And we had accolades. We had best of. We had this. We had, you know, so that's what we were selling mm-hmm. until we figured out what people were responding to here. And now I think the message more than anything is this is a show that people need to see. There's a heart to it. There's a, you know, it, yes. it, so we're responding to what we're being told. Yeah. If that makes any sense. It's it's yeah. ongoing. It's ongoing. And we talk about it all the time. And now that the show is opened and the show received fantastic reviews here, like it did everywhere else, um, the night that I saw it, it was packed. Mm-hmm. It was packed. Which, oh, yeah, mine too. And the audience was on its feet before the final blackout. We, I didn't tell you this, oh, yeah. but we do a separate podcast where on Thursdays we talk about things called Our Favorite Things, mm-hmm. but they're usually musicals from the past for our students to rediscover. Come From Away broke the rule. <laughs> it's the first show that we've talked about that's actually happening today because it is so powerful and everybody should see it. So now your mind is focused, I'm assuming, on a Tony Awards campaign. Mm-hmm. How does, how does a, a campaign work? Well, and I can o- no, no. I mean, I can only tell no, you what happened this. from yeah. our other campaign, yeah. Yeah. and part of that had to do with the fact that from going from being a show that nobody gave <laughs> gave a you know a chance in hell of being yeah. around, we made it through a really tough winter. We were there. Our advances were going up. Our grosses were going up in the good spring. Signs. That's all good signs. Um, uh, a lot of the shows that came in that season that everybody thought was going to be the, you know, this is the one to look out for, yeah. they they disappointed in one way or another right. or didn't land the way they were supposed to. We were still there, you know. And then uh, it turned out that ultimately there weren't that many shows with an original book, an original score. We had mm. been there. We were, you know, good citizens. Our actors were, you know, out doing press whenever they were asked to. It, it, you know, it's just that kind of you ha- being part of the community. We just said, just get us in the race. We just want to get in the race. Mm. And then once we got in the race, then it was, you know, just represent the show the best you can. And we talked to the actors about it all the time. Your job is to do eight a week as well as you can. You got people in that house watching you every day. And then as many other things you can do to help be a a citizen of this community, let's do it. But, you know, always the priority is the show and and the the health of the show. So, you you know, you you strategize a little bit about messaging. Um, But again, really, you know, for us, it's like, well, let's we have to wait and see. You just have to wait and see what what we're actually talking about. Because you don't know. There's 13 new musicals this season. That is incredible. And you know what? For somebody who loves new musicals, this is amazing. Right? Amazing. Amazing. And they're not all by really famous people, and they're not all starring really famous. It is amazing. And I feel like that's like the work that we've all been doing for the last... The, we who love new musicals, yeah. and there's a bunch of us out there, we've been doing this work for 30 years, and it feels like it's actually starting to like, <laughs> I, take off. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, The work is paying off for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would just love to know what that moment was like when they said in the Tony Award goes to... <laughs> I'm, I, I would, because well, you Well, you know what? So it was... Hard. You're sitting there, and you're just like, oh, geez. And what be we... Over. What, okay, so here's the other thing that was going on. That year, the the director, producers of the show, of the, of the Tony Award, Awards. Their yeah. idea was to have the casts from all four nominated shows, after their after they did their number, stay in the theater. They were all upstage, and the idea was whoever won all four shows had rehearsed a victory, you know, two minute oh. thing. 
So we knew that our company was upstage with all the other companies, and we were sitting right in front of Tom Holtz and Ira Pittleman, and Tom leaned over my shoulder and goes, how does it feel knowing those kids are all up there thinking about this? I said, it feels horrible, oh, yeah. you know, horrible. And we're sitting there, and this is a funny story, because Bernadette Peters opened the envelope, and she came to our show a couple weeks ago, and uh, Randy and I were sitting there, and she goes, and the musical is, and it felt like, like three minutes went by, because she just paused. And we're like, oh, Jesus. And she said Memphis, and we just, like, erupted. Right. But when we saw her a couple of weeks ago, Randy said, you know, it felt like forever when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> it did, because we were like, yeah. Mm. yeah. Wow. But, you know, it's just, it was uh, it was a magical moment, but it's, uh, you know, awards are funny things. It's, uh, you don't want to get too wrapped up in it. Uh, you can't get, you yet, just can't get you too can't wrapped up in it. You can't say it didn't help a little it bit. It certainly helped Memphis. Keep it going. It certainly helped Memphis. But I remember in that time, you know, it was 10 years ago, um, the producers were. I remember even in, as an actor in New York, thinking, knowing that the producers were the reason why Memphis and the cast, yeah. of course, and the mm-hmm. work that everyone mm-hmm. did. But mm-hmm. you kept that going. Yeah, you yeah. kept that show alive. Yeah. Well, we're very That's stubborn. Commendable. We're very You're stubborn. Very. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. <laughs> uh, what's next? <laughs> oh Lord, you know, because um, yeah, you did it right now. We're very still very much caught up in in Come From Away. It, it you know. It, we talk about this a lot um, at Junkyard. It's one thing to get a show up. It's another thing to keep it up. Yeah. And uh, we learned that on Memphis for sure. And Randy and I looked at each other after Memphis opened. We went, okay, now what? <laughs> that was the part we we knew how to do. Now we got to figure out all the rest of it. And 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 it's you just don't walk away from a show. You don't say, okay, we're hit, blah, 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 blah. You have to keep at it. I mean, just as I was talking about the way we keep fine-tuning our message, it's every day. So... We didn't really get any headspace to do anything else after Memphis opened until right after we opened our national tour. And then we said, okay, now we feel like we can like start to look around, which again, bad financial model. You need to keep a lot of balls in the air. We have some shows that we've been developing that have been kind of um, sitting a little bit on the shelf for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Some of it had to do with our ability to take it on, but most of it was creative in terms of availability of the creative team or work that needed to be done. So there are a couple of projects that will be, you know, like moving to that next stage this Mm -hmm. summer. But our, you know, our primary thing right now, and and you know, it's important that everybody who's working with us understand that the more successful Come From Away is, the more successful all of it is. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, totally. Because because that just gives us the freedom and the flexibility right. to do more. Oh yeah. Well, I look forward to more. I look yeah, forward to give so us more much to see. more to see. Yeah. Um, and we like like you. It's very hard for us to pick favorites as well. But I would like to go on record and say, with all sincerity, "Come From Away" is the best musical I've seen this season. Oh, thank um, you. Truly beautiful. It really, it really, really is. And I hope that all of our listeners, please, if you're coming to New York City, please get a ticket to "Come From Away" because it is it is worth every penny you spend, and it is a transformative ex- theatrical experience. Is exactly what theater should be. Thank you. Truly. Yeah. So thank you, Sue. And thanks yeah. to My Randy. Pleasure. And thanks to Junkyard. Thank you. And stubbornness. And stubbornness. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, stubbornness. <laughs> Kevin, guess what? What, Rob? We now have over 50 iTunes <gasps> reviews. Huzzah! Huzzah! Indeed! Oh. We are climbing those iTunes rating charts. That's amazing. Yeah. How do we climb even higher? Can you take me <laughs> high enough? Little Rock of Ages for you. Do you know I like that you took it up so high too? You didn't even you like went right to the tenor place. I was gonna do no Robert Goulet. Like, no, 
can you take me? Hey, enough. Thanks for coming out tonight. Ooh, and my falsetto there. <laughs> Thank you. And a little Sergio Frankie? Yeah, a little Sergio. It's never over. <laughs> Much like the 24-hour buffet down in the lobby of the Dunes Casino. Me and Sid the Caesar. Two nights only at the Mirage. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, lovely listeners, this is where you come in. This is how we're going to climb those iTunes rating charts. That's right. Lovely listeners, if you love us. Would you go to iTunes, click on the iTunes store, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Then click on Ratings and Reviews. Under the Customer Reviews, click Write a Review. Then let us know what you think from one to five stars. That's right. And you can leave comments, too, like Kevin Thomas is a god. Or, Rob, who the hell is Hervé Villachez? Who, 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 who is Hervé Via, uh, via sh- oh my God. I fell for it See, again. You fell for that it. wasn't even the, the script. The man has never done <laughs> one musical in his entire life, and he gets mentioned more than Stephen Sondheim. Right, Sontag. but I love him from James the Bond. Okay, anyway, oh, yes. guys, help us out. Please. please. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lin-Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.